Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Hello again, wonderful people of the world. I'm your host, Shane LeMaster, and you're here for Conversations of the Mind. I'm so glad to be back. I hope you guys are doing well out there, that you are all safe, and that you are all healthy. And uh, yeah, thank goodness that uh, we are finding our way out of this uh, pandemic. So thank you to all you continued listeners, and welcome to all you new listeners uh, just want to take a quick moment out to remind you to go check out our YouTube page. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. There you can find all sorts of videos, uh, videos of these podcasts, of these shows, of the interviews, if you want to get a, a little more multi-layered with your viewing or your listening. Um, you can also find a number of different playlists that I put together on a variety of the topics that we talk about on the show. So if you want to learn more, Go check that out. Also, go check out our website, mindops.com, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, please make sure that you like and subscribe and share our podcast when it comes across your social media. That means the world to us. If you have any comments for me as a host, please feel free to go to the website and there's a comment section there that you can send me personal comments if you have suggestions or questions or whatever, reach out. This is an interactive thing, or at least I'm trying to make it so. So do reach out. Uh, hope you all are doing well, and uh, hope you're ready for a great show. Today is a really, really good one. So without further ado, let's get into it.
right, today's good news story is just a real, real short one, a quick one, something that I'm super stoked about these days. Let's see, today is February 12th when I'm recording this, uh, 2022, and as far as I've heard, the mask mandates will be lifted in my locale in Fort Collins, Colorado. So I am super stoked about that. I never really liked uh, the whole masks uh, idea. Um, I understand why why it was implemented, but I'm so glad to see uh, it getting reversed and, and uh, restrictions and things like that starting to loosen up. So I think that's huge. And uh, as the good news story, I just kind of wanted to earmark that for today. Um, oftentimes, I find that I use these podcasts as a way to archive uh, definitely conversations, but archive uh, moments in history. And um, you know, not all of them are, are big news like like the one today. Some I, are big news, and I try and mark those with uh, sort of a release date around that. So, so that I mean, selfishly, so that I can go back and listen to it and and see what the world was kind of up to at that time that I did the recording, and uh, sort of what my thoughts were about it, and use it as a reflective practice to sort of see how my thoughts and ideas, uh, beliefs and values change over time. So. That's it for the good news story. I just think that that's awesome. Uh, So hopefully you all are staying safe and healthy and uh, are also going to enjoy the added freedom of uh, not having a mask. Awesome news. Okay, so what has been on my mind lately? Honestly, I have been completely consumed and overwhelmed with pain. Um, I don't know how many of you out there experience pain. Uh, pain on a regular basis, chronic pain, some kind of, um, you know, whether it's psychological or physical pain, uh, but on a regular basis, I feel for you all out there. Um, you know, I've been a competitive athlete for most of my life, and uh, most of my life, you know, kind of treated my body as if it was indestructible. I've been through a number of surgeries, um, some more successful than others, but. And and definitely all of them leaving their mark on my psychology and my physical body and my capabilities. Um, but recently, you know, I've been having on and off back pain for the last few years. Sorry, you hear my dog in the background? Uh, over Christmas break, we got a number of puppies in our home. So we now have a pack of four dogs. So I have more co-hosts for the show. Goody me. So I apologize if you hear uh, them in the background. That's little Aspen. Uh, anyway, I've been dealing with back pain for a couple years now, uh, off and on for a number of causes. You know, my, my job as a therapist, I'm sitting all the time. Uh, I used to do heavy construction um, and, and heavy physical labor when I was younger. Um, and I've, I've been a martial artist uh, for many, many decades. Um, so all of it has accumulated to do some real serious damage to my back. And um, I started getting this crazy... Uh, nerve pain down in my wrists and my ankles at night when I would get horizontal. Like I'm talking 10 out of 10 pain, curled up in a ball, wailing and screaming all night long, um, doing things from, you know, articulating my wrists in weird positions to get some tension on it to, you know, I hate to admit it, but even hitting my wrists against the door jam. Um, It seemed like pain that was controllable, something that was under my control, like hitting the door jam, that pain seemed so much uh, less intense than the uncontrollable nerve pain that I was feeling. And it felt like stabbing. It felt like someone was taking a sledgehammer to my joints. Um, It felt like electricity and burning and all these different 
feelings and I literally could not keep my body still trying to fall asleep. Uh, I would try and I would try all my meditative techniques and the energy would just build and build and build in those areas until it had to be discharged uh, with movement usually. And, you know, after keeping my wife up numerous nights and myself, you know, getting no sleep, uh, my, I think I was averaging two hours a night for a number of weeks. Um, it's just been so terrible. One of the most agonizing things of my entire life. And I don't share that with many people, you know. Um, but again, you know, I, I like to be honest with you all out there. And I like to have a record for myself of uh, my own experiences. So I've been dealing with this pain. Uh, went to the doctor, been trying to get it figured out. Uh, they haven't, you know, they don't give an official diagnosis yet. But uh, results from three recent MRIs showed all sorts of gnarly stuff in my back. Uh, so I meet with a specialist on Monday and find out if uh, surgery is an option or if there are other treatments that I need to explore first. But really, that's been on my mind recently is pain, right? And it's so weird how we humans have pain. Um, obviously, we've developed the ability to sense it and make sense of it uh, evolutionarily through the years. It serves a purpose. It tells us that something is wrong. Um, but it's so interesting. It's uh, because in many traditions that I've studied, um, spiritual traditions or, uh, you know, life traditions, so many of them talk about pain being a teacher, right? And, and I really think it is, it is such a wonderful teacher, although painful. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to also open my, open myself, open my awareness to, being teachable through ways other than pain, okay? So pain is necessary. It's a necessary part of life, but I do think that uh, I can learn a lot more from uh, joy as well and uh, good feelings. But you can't have one without the other, right? You can't enjoy the good without the bad times. So I'm getting that all figured out. Uh, just wanted to give you all a little update. Um, if I have been absent, uh, if you know me and I've been absent from our normal interactions or our you know, life events or whatever. I apologize. Uh, it's just been terrible, uh, terrible for me to go out um, into public for any more than an hour. Uh, so that's what's been going on. Uh, that's what's been on my mind. I am getting it figured out. And uh, if you could just send me a little prayer or blessing, uh, send me some good vibes um, for the best outcomes possible and so that I can get back to my jujitsu sport at uh, full intensity like I like to. Um, yeah, send me those prayers. Help me get back to my passion. Okay, so today's guest, awesome, awesome guest, Dr. Kylie Rogala. Um, so Kylie is an Earth Day baby. She was born on Earth Day. And uh, this has, um, I, I think she would say this has influenced her uh, current sort of personality characteristic trait of being eco-conscious, uh, which I think fits so perfectly. And uh, we, we, we need so many more people like that. Um, just we got to take care of our environment, people. Uh, but more on that in the podcast. So Kylie, she described herself when I asked her to uh, as a seeker of universal truths. And that just really resonated with me and my own um, passions and my own interests. So uh, definitely seeking the higher truths, the truths that, um, I don't know, uh, I mean, there are, 
well, we'll get into universal truth more, and I'm not even going to get into it in the in the intro. But uh, awesome, um, she's been a long time uh, doggy foster mom, which is amazing. Um, just having these pets in our lives is is so amazing. I've gotten to know a couple of Kylie's dogs over the years, uh, Macy and Moxie, uh, wonderful little dogs, um, and uh, yeah, just wonderful. So yeah, Kylie and I are going to get into it today, and we get pretty deep. Um, Doctor Rogala's um, one of, I, would, I would say one of her uh, interests in, in the field of psychology and counseling is existentialism or those big, deep questions that we all ask ourselves. Who are we? Uh, what are we? What are we here for? Those kinds of questions uh, is really what existential um, psychology really focuses around, and that's her specialty. So we really get to dive into that today. Get to some of those universal truths. Uh, I don't know if we quite arrive, but uh, we we try and push the envelope a little bit further and a little bit further through shared understanding to try and understand or interpret, at least for ourselves, what some of those universal truths can be. Um, I'll leave all of her contact info uh, that she passed along for me to give to you in the description. So if you want to reach out to Dr. Rogala for any reason, you can find that information there. Also put the information on our uh, our personal uh, YouTube page uh, for the podcast as well as uh, the website. So check out the description for all that information. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this one. Uh, so buckle yourselves in, uh, take a real deep drink of life water, and let's start to dig into this um, deep world of existentialism and uh, questions about our existence, life, and death. Here we go. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page. Okay, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster, and uh, today we are here for uh, episode number 103. Uh, we just passed the 100 mark, um, you know, a few weeks ago, and that was really a big moment for us. Um, we're here today with Dr. Kylie Rogala. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Shane. Yeah, of course. Um, and just for the listeners, uh, you know, a little caveat with this episode, both Kylie and I have our dogs roaming around the, uh, personal, uh, professional studios in our, in our houses. And, um, <laughs> So if you hear uh, 
clickety clack of, of toenails. That's probably on my side and, and, or barking on either side. That's, that's to be expected. So we have lots of guests in our, in our podcast today. And my, my dogs like to make uh, guest appearances every yes. once in a while on the show too. So. And you're back up to three, I believe as well. Yeah. Same with me. Nice. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the first question is always, uh, and o- my only standardized question for the podcast that I ask everybody that is, uh, that the podcast name is Conversations with the Mind. And I just want to get a sense from you, you know, when you hear that phrase, Conversations with the Mind, what comes up for you um, in, you know, in your idea bank, in your, uh, in your mm-hmm. visualization, like what comes up? Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably a little bit influenced by being able to be on your website and know the visual representation of the way you present the website of conversation or mind ops and conversation with the mind. I'm getting a sense of that. For me personally, it's, it's less of just a snapshot, but it's more of this is a conversation with self in relation to a larger universal energy structure in the world. So it's not necessarily about human connection, but just a connection to a bigger purpose. It, it has a lot of light to it. I think you know, a lot of color to it, this idea of who am I in this place, in this moment right now, that's really comes, what comes up for me, I guess, off the cuff. Mm. Could probably keep going into, you know, what happens secondary to that, but that's just my immediate impression. Nice. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and, you know, you make it pretty apparent right off the bat, there's, you know, these two streams that we tend to focus on. One is our individual self and connection to this greater, greater, energy source or whatever, whatever it is you want to call it. And then also um, individual um, source points that could possibly be connected with other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, tell me a little bit more about that, because you said mm-hmm. that you're not seeing that as, um, as, uh, I guess, prevalent or as often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the way that I see it is, and this is something that I was thinking about before joining the talk today is just personal reflection. I have, since I was very, very small, my earliest of years that I can recall in memory have been really, I guess, separated or not interested in small talk, Mm. you know, whether that be when you're four years old or 10 years old and you're at a family reunion or you're new in school or anything like that. What I'm thinking about more with the connection piece is there's something about you know, my light and my purpose here that unites with other people so much more deeply and so much more intriguing to me than, you know, what do you do for a living? How's work? Um, Where are you living now? Is everything good? You know, that's, that's always been historically difficult for me to engage in and be authentic. And so when I think of authenticity, I think more of that just generalized link between people that maybe isn't spoken of as often as you would think about just checking in with folks, you know, calling somebody, how are you? Mm-hmm. Do you really want to know? I will definitely go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I, I hate small talk. Uh, <laughs> I avoid conversations with most people just because I know it's going to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm so, I get so excited when someone asks me a big question or like, you know, some, some people in my gym, you know, listen to my podcast and they'll hear something and come up to me. And rather than being, you know, Hey, how you doing? How's your day? They'll ask me like this really deep question. I'll be like, yeah. oh, man, like, 
I, I got to get with you after training today. So mm-hmm. we'll really discuss this. Um, mm-hmm. No, I think that's, that's probably, um, you know, why we connect so well together too, because mm-hmm. you and I just have these deep conversations about, you know, all sorts of things, reality, yeah. um, you know, how people connect with each other, things like that. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. I really like that. I'm right there with you. I hate this. Small I talk. It's hard. It, it, it's not a, it's not a, you know, I don't want it in my life. I want people to care, but I don't want people to care about who I truly am. And I want to give that back and I want to make that a safe space. Yeah. So, so that seems to be. Yeah. So you talked about um, this connection with people, right? Surface level connection versus this really deep mm-hmm. connection. And that's been, um, that's been an interesting sort of thing for me to think about in, in my own studies of self and of uh, different theories of reality and, and different religious traditions and things like that mm-hmm. in that, uh, you know, there's this here in the West, we tend to think of ourselves as these individuals, right? Individualistic yeah. people. Maybe if you go into the spiritual or relis- uh, religious realm, like we all have a soul or a spirit or something, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. greater than ourself that is part of our, our concept of self, maybe that we mm-hmm. can't see, but that we all sort of um, are here individually and going to some place together eventually like after death mm-hmm. versus uh in some other traditions they talk about um how we are all actually one organism right mm-hmm. that we are all one being we're just fractured uh fractured sense of one you know if one self was fractured mm-hmm. into eight and a half billion pieces that's what that's what the human race would be and we mm-hmm. are all individualistic in a way but we we don't um like we have a greater collective purpose in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I struggle with like all these different ideas of what uh, human beings and what our connection to each other can mean. And like when I, when I'm just, you know, not interested in talking to people about uh, surface level things, if I'm actually like d- disregarding a part of myself, because I just like turned down an aspect of myself trying to teach me something, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I struggle with all these things and like, how do I spend my time um, the most optimally and who do I, who do I need to connect with and talk with? It's very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. And this idea of 8 million plus people trying to integrate mm-hmm. and maybe unconsciously, we don't know that that is a drive or that's a purpose. And maybe we're getting some guidance on the way, but we don't understand what that means for us. And we might be scared of what, what that means for us. So, you know, coming from my counselor education background and working with people with existential angst with life questions. That's very common. I think during the pandemic and the forced quarantining and isolation, this has come up for people in a more visceral way than maybe it ever has before. And I don't know if that's the same with people that you're working with in your practice, with your families and communities, but this idea of what happens next, if my predictability of life, like I saw it and more of that superficial lens of go to work, come home, perform roles, repeat, recycle, repeat, if that is broken up, I think that raises so much of that just authentic angst for a lot of different individuals, I think worldwide. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Existential angst is, is through the roof right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Especially in a, in a culture like ours and not every culture is like this, but a lot of our media and things like that is fear-based, you know? And so people are already scared and then 
you know, um, these bigger organizations know the, the psychology behind it because they have psychologists working for them that are making these ads. <laughs> and they know that fear is going to get people's attention. And, but it's also going to drive um, people to disconnect, you know, and that kind of scares me a little bit, especially since, you know, I've had a number of uh, psychedelic visionary experiences where I, where I would see my individual self or my soul or whatever, but also intertwined with all the different souls across time and space and uh, the earth right now currently and other you know dimensions and things like that, but that we're all intertwined and that each person um, plays a vital role. So that if you were to remove like even one soul from that giant equation, the, the whole equation would collapse, you know? Um, and so it, it makes me worry that people are becoming more disconnected in their existential angst as opposed to connecting with each other, right? We're all suffering through this existential piece right here. Why are we keeping that inside? Why don't we talk about death? Why don't we talk about what could happen and, and uh, what other traditions think about it? You know, it, it could, this could all be used for good to, to mm. open us up to that discussion but it's, that's not what I see. And it's not what yeah. I see happening. Yeah. I think politics also have been, unfortunately, a huge part of how we've made meaning in understanding what that discomfort looks like and where my, my allegiance or my, you know, progress is going. I want to go more towards something that is more unknown. I want to go into self-exploration or I want to go back into something that is more safe more comfortable. Yeah. And it, it's very uncomfortable. And I think we're not talking about family systems yet. I'm sure we, we might get into that, but the, this idea of what was modeled for us over our, our lifetime. And, you know, I know a bit about your family, you know, a bit about mine. We didn't grow up in the most, you know, cookie cutter types of families. And maybe that's what brought us into some of this more openness and interest because maybe we didn't have a choice, but I think now, despite how people grew up, my little blind dog is drinking water like a okay. monster back there. <laughs> we, we gave that disclosure earlier. No, I thought um, that was a dog tail. Like, um, <laughs> no, that's just, awesome. that's just hydration. Awesome. Yeah. But this idea of, okay, now is there a possibility for me to outgrow my old shell? And how old is that shell? You know, if you've been, you know, cut off from other conversations like we're having right now because family says you know that's that's wooey that's something that's I don't know conspiracy that's something that's not true that anything like that if that has been reinforced for 45 years and all of a sudden a pandemic hits us and we lose loved ones maybe some of the people the voices that said something like that to us for so many many years now are all of a sudden gone Mm. it puts us in a place of this you know wrestle this rumble not to steal too many of Brene Brown's words. She's who I would consider my spirit animal. If, mm-hmm. if she would be an animal, I love all of her work and the, her conception on some of these things, but yeah, we're being forced to make a decision sometimes to grow out of an old script or an old identity into a potential new one. And I think a p- pandemic has pre- presented that to us in ways that has not existed for our present lifetime. Mm. I'm going to get a little, um, a little, I don't know, fractal on you for a second. Frackle, I like the word. Frackle. Yeah, and in uh, that, uh, I would say that we're, you know, and it's at its most basic level, like we are 
changing our identity in every moment, right? Yeah. Uh, our, we are literally not the same person we were just the last moment ago because mm -hmm. we have physically, you know, cells that turn over uh, mm -hmm. every second. So we're, we're literally not the same physical person, but also my interacting with you here is literally changing who mm -hmm. I am on, even if, if on a small level. So, um, you know, when people say that, you know, that's another thing, people say that they're stuck in some, um, some place, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, they've yeah. labeled their identity as something, um, and sort of, in a way, doomed themselves to a bit of, mm. uh, you know, self-perpetuated suffering, as opposed mm. to realizing like, oh, I, I can change in any moment, I have this power within me, um, I'm going to choose today to start making my way back to uh, a, a place that I would prefer to be mentally, mm -hmm. emotionally, psychologically, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. even physically, mm -hmm. you know, getting in shape is a process, you don't just snap your fingers and then you're different but you have the ability yeah. to change your identity and who you literally are and come off to the world just by making the decision to do that yeah if i can go on a small soapbox and it's not just yeah, because it's it's available for me as and you know teaching students who are in their final year of training to become counselors and going out into the field and practicing one thing I don't, I can't really speak to whether this be universal across the world, but definitely in Western culture in the United States, we use phrasing such as depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. And it is right there. I don't want to actually get up and grab it, but the big purple book that we use in the counseling profession, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, those aren't diagnoses, but we use them almost exclusively for describing just this type of unsettled feeling or attachment to the world or within oneself, the comfort within oneself. So depression, this might either interest people or irritate people and that's okay. We'll, we'll just introduce both. We'll make Let's ruffle the feathers. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a dichotomy of that either. It can be a whole spectrum of things that that's not a diagnosis. Depression is not a diagnosis. There's a diagnosis for a depressive episode. There's a diagnosis for major depressive disorder. A lot of this is dependent on timing and it's dependent on how many things have been in, incurring and ongoing for people that are impacting function. And that is so important. When we start talking about mental health and symptomology, how much is our daily functioning actually impacted? Mm -hmm. If we have a down day, if we have a down mood, pathologically, you know, defining that as depression, I think is a disservice for all of us individually. We shouldn't be doing that. We should, oof, this is an interesting, you know, shift on my relationship with myself in the world today. I wonder what I can learn from this and embracing that a little bit more. I think it's such a strength-based place. We want to say depression and the same goes for anxiety. And I have a bigger soapbox on that part, but Physiological versus cognitive anxiety is something I talk to my students about all the time. Somebody doesn't just say, I have anxiety. If, if a client were to present that for me, if a student were to say that, I'd say, describe what that means. Hmm. Okay. Are we talking about heart palpitations and, you know, sweating or dizziness or just that, that idea of like narrowed focus, something that could be associated with a panic disorder or something that could be on that line of, you know, diagnostic thinking. Versus cognitive anxiety, you know, rumination, staying up at night, thinking about things, worrying about things, 
but I don't hear anything. I don't know any better. If you take out that big purple book, those are two different, completely separate classifications Mm -hmm. for treatment and for conceptualizations. But we just too often lump everything together. You know, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Shane, or maybe in your own training with your doc program right now, when I hear depression, anxiety, I I don't try to do this outright, but my eyes roll over a little bit saying, okay, that doesn't mean anything to me yet until we hear more. Yeah. Most of my um, current uh, PhD work, I mean, they're training us to be educators or researchers primarily. Um, and so most of my, if not all of my practice, um, skill sets and things like that came from my master's programs. Uh, mm-hmm. and most of us in my current program, uh, come from that kind of, uh, skills-based background. Plus I had mm-hmm. you know, 10 years in the field in between, right. you know, um, that and, and doing the PhD. So, um, and, you know, in my private practice here in Fort Collins, uh, I get to do things my way, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I get, I get a little bit more freedom as far as like what kind of uh, ethics and morals and values I want to insert into the business, into the company model and how I approach counseling as opposed to how I may approach it if I were still working for a uh, community nonprofit, right? Mm. It has specific policies and value mm. systems that they okay. want us to embody. So in my current private practice, I, I have a DSM in the office, mm-hmm. but I can't tell you the last time I pulled it out and Mm -hmm. um, I tell my clients and you know I I was I was brought up on the DSM and and it was sort of touted as this uh this grand bible of answers for the Mm -hmm. mental health field um and then I started learning a little bit about the history of the DSM and how Mm -hmm. it was created and and how uh white privileged men were the ones who came Mm -hmm. up with all these things and I started seeing it more as a as a means to classify populations and to lump people together and put them in boxes where they may not necessarily want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I saw it as a, con- a possible control mechanism um, okay. and, and a way for insurance companies to get paid. So in my yeah. practice, I tell my clients, I uh, don't expect a diagnosis from me. I will not give you a diagnosis because I feel like it does more harm than it does good. Mm-hmm. It's good for us to identify symptoms and maybe mm-hmm. underlying causes and work on those. But for me to label you as uh, anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder, like that label has the potential to follow you around and impact mm-hmm. how you think about yourself for the rest of mm-hmm. your life. Describing yourself to others as, oh, I'm anxious or, oh, I'm depressed, you know, that can be so much more detrimental if that is your inner dialogue. And so, right. yes. so we don't focus on diagnoses in, in my practice. We focus yeah. on uh, symptomology and underlying causes. Mm-hmm. But another piece that, that you were saying was, um, you know, this uptick in existential stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I have certainly seen uh, probably 80% of my new clients coming in are seeking some sort of uh, deeper meaning and purpose type issue in their life as opposed to coming in trying to work on a mental health specific issue. So I think this is going to be a continuing and growing trend, um, which is is good for me because uh, psychedelic work, um, it it can be highly uh, spiritually charged. um, Mm -hmm. And if people Mm -hmm. are seeking that sort of uh, exploration of self, then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can give it to them um, very Mm -hmm. quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. So I like that a lot, but I wanted to talk to you specifically about existential Mm -hmm. stuff because that's, that's how I know you as far as like your interests and your background. 
And just in general, for the audience who may think that that word existential is a huge word, and it mm-hmm. is, uh, mm-hmm. that's the first time I, I heard it. Can you just give like a basic overview of sort of where is existentialism uh, coming from? Like maybe as a movement, a little bit of, of its history, what it followed uh, and what's mm-hmm. come out of it? Sure. I think to go into that dialogue, I would have to go into knowing where I first recognized when I was seeking some, you know, further, what I call big T truths. I was searching for something more universal than just what I'm told to think. And I think that's, that's where my, my rumble with religion happened Mm -hmm. in my, you know, early adulthood. So we're rumble with uh, the government came. Yeah, yeah, right. So we have rumbles in that way of being really. scripted and something like that, where I had this very spiritual passion itself. Mm. But finding an identification, I just there was dissonance there of if if I go to this gathering or if I identify in this way, I'm being told what to think as opposed to how to think. Mm. You know, and that happened really early for me. So I I have very, very strong visual memories of being in second grade. And I don't know how many of us can think back to second grade. I don't even know how old that second grade is. So I was in music class mm-hmm. and Mr. Morkin was my teacher. So Mr. Morkin, if you're still out there in this current life, hello and welcome to Shane's podcast. But I remember going through the TTTAs and, you know, like the, the ways that we've learned how music works. And I was in second grade and I had this, this take back experience of actually seeing myself as, you know, not an out of body experience, but it was a sense of dissociation where I was, I was thinking, is this what I'm here for? Mm. Is this really important to me? What does this mean? I remember that very viscerally happening that early. And I think that followed me. I became a little bit of a rebel when it came to, you know, conforming norms throughout some of my life. And some of that wasn't necessarily my choice. You know, I I grew up in a a Northern Minnesota town. I was the one student in my graduating class that I knew of whose parents got divorced, Mm -hmm. you know, that I was the one person I knew of whose father died when you were in your early twenties, you know, and I started to say, you know, is there something about me? Is there something bigger that I need to understand here? And that followed me for a really long time. So thinking about just there, is there a different way to think about this? Is there a a bigger reason that this is happening was an escape for me, but in a healthy way, you know, if I can think about larger mechanisms happening there, I became more passionate, more excited about that as opposed to I'm a victim of the universe, right? So we probably all have known people in our lives or even ourselves that say, the world is out to get me, God's against me, you know, whatever. I wanted to start to reframe that narrative a little bit. And that really got me excited. So Shane, going back to the part of your questions about existentialism and where it comes from, I do know, you know, studying such the origins of existentialism, aside from a lot of our major psychological theories did have its roots in philosophy. So it's older than our psychological theories. So if we think about Freud in the early, very early 1900s, 
that's the one that gets the most recognition, but existentialism really did start earlier than that and started as more of a philosophy. Over time, it built into something that was more tangible, but existential theory, when it comes to counseling, when it comes to mental health, has nothing to do with technique, and I think that rubs against Western culture in a lot of ways as well. We want something but we can look at a manual. We want to be able to assign a technique. We want to see the output. We want to see the change. Evidence based. And then we can prove. Yeah. What'd <laughs> you say? People want, people want evidence based. Yes. Yes. And that's absolutely. That's, that's just a buzzword right now. That's the trendy thing. And, you know, we're starting to see that evidence based is not necessarily the best uh, in a lot of the recent articles coming out. So, yeah. And, you know what? I, I'm also an advocate for, and going back to what you're talking about with the DSM and not wanting to box people, I'm also an advocate for treatment. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is only able to get support through an insurance company, and that's the only way they're able to afford such, you know, giving them a least stigmatizing, you know, diagnosis or something that's tentative, because a lot, excuse me, a lot of the DSM diagnoses do have a time limit on them. So if this is not true for you in three months, six months, it's no longer relevant and being able to talk about that with clients, I think is really important for access purposes, but what they're, you know, what they're seeking to change. Maybe you and I can dialogue a little bit about that before we go into the full like range of the existential history, but what do you see from your clientele as far as what they come in for? If they don't have it scripted as in, this is my presenting problem. I want this to go away. Mm-hmm. How is that even you know, presented to you, because that may be a good foundation for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to, I will go straight into that. There are th- three lines of thought that I, mm-hmm. had to, I had to jot down right now, as you just started, you know, the first half of your existential journey, <laughs> talking about it. So there's definitely some avenues that I want to go into, uh, based off of what you just said. But um, as far as like how clients uh, show up for me, um, I mean, they show up in all sorts of different ways, but some of the more primary ways, um, you know, people wanting to know that what they're doing in their life is making an impact um, either, you know, in their family or in their community or, um, you know, wondering like, am I this, you know, this lonely human, um, you know, what's, what is my impact going to be it's going to be you know not worth anything and therefore you know those kind of thoughts are leading to depression and and uh, things like that so just feelings of insignificance um not having meaning and purpose in their life whether it's a job um or you know in my particular practice i get a lot of people who come in who've had giant psychedelic experiences on their own and don't know what sense to make of it once they're shown like this ultimate reality for a brief period of time um and I also have people coming to me who maybe have read something uh, or, or read, a, you know, the Michael Pollan book or something like that, where they come in and they say, I did not know that these layers of consciousness were uh, available to me to access. And now I'm interested in, in exploring myself on those different layers. Can you help me? Um, mm-hmm. so we, we offer psychedelic assisted psychotherapies for that. Mm-hmm. So people can mm-hmm. explore who they are beyond their physical self who they are beyond their concept of uh shane or of kylie or you know mm-hmm. you can get past that and uh we can experience yourself as as what you truly are you know one of mm-hmm. the ultimate truths yeah well ultimate truths would be something that i, I started writing down as you were talking there and mm-hmm. that goes into more I, I guess more accessible 
you know, from this, the 60s, 70s and onwards, Yalm's work with existentialism. But even if we go before that, so maybe we should, I should take a step back a little bit um, through the history. So definitely started in a physical, uh, sorry, what was I going to say? Not physiological, philosophical right. realm. Yes. Um, but going into World War II, so if, if listeners here are familiar with Viktor Frankl, I think he was a very foundational person I think about when I'm in this mindset and is a really good grounding force when we think about our own traumas and everything else going around us because his theory and where his perspective and existential thought really came into place. So he was, he was a medical doctor in World War II and had a spouse and I think both parents. And I think there was at least one sibling, if not two, but was pulled into Auschwitz during World War II. Everybody in this family was killed by force, obviously through those mechanisms. He was asked to be the doctor for people that are in dying states throughout that entire stay for him. And he was really on the edge of death when you know, they were emancipated and and that finally happened for them and they were freed from that, but he was on the verge of death. And through all of that, through losing everybody, through being abused and physically tortured and being physiologically almost unable to get up in the, for a day, still being forced to do labor. He really came up with his psychological theory of this is that the last of the human freedoms, the very last thing that anybody can take away from us is our choice of how we respond to things that are going on around us and to us. Okay. So his book, Man's Search for Meaning, very, very big plug for that. If nobody's heard of it, it's an easy read. It's shorter, but it talks about some of that experience for him. It also talks about how he made meaning of it moving forward and his attitude towards what had happened to him was something that even the Nazis and even his abusers could not take away from him. Hmm groundbreaking and so logotherapy was born from that so that's victor Frankel's primary work and his spin on existentialism was logotherapy just really focusing on attitude you know if we're having this you know locus of control battle you know is it the world's fault is it somebody else's fault or is there some impersonal empowerment that i can really grab a hold to to reframe my power in this very moment he was a big advocate for that and that's definitely where um, that comes up for me. But I didn't know, Shane, if you had heard of Frankel, if we wanted to add sure. to that before we go into Yellow, because sure. he's a whole other sure. sure. player in my sphere. No, I'd, uh, I'd like to um, ask you a few questions about that. What was the, um, the phrase that you mentioned, Frankel, saying something about uh, the last freedom and choice? And what was that again? Yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing everybody. So this is the best that I can do. But the very last of our, our freedoms is you know, the very, very last thing that can be taken from us, which I guess existentially can't be taken from us. The very last of our human freedoms is our attitude towards the world and everything that's going on around us. Mm, sorry. Okay, so, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The way that you said it the first time, I, I think you said the choice um, mm-hmm. but, and the way you said it the first time made me think about this and we don't have to get into this, but this huge, uh, tribalism uh piece going on right now in the country between uh vaccinated versus unvaccinated oh yeah and the discussion about you know Mm -hmm. should people be able to choose 
what is put in their body versus, uh, you know, doing things for, uh, you know, more of like a, a communally based orientation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we don't have to get into that, but that that's what it reminded me of is like, um, yeah, people are trying to take away people's freedoms every day for all sorts of things. And COVID is just, it's just mm -hmm. one of these politically charged things. Mm -hmm. um, getting back to Frankel, what I like about him so much is his piece on attitude. Um, mm -hmm. I employ that myself in my therapies, but also in my in my personal life and always have not knowing that it came from Frankel uh, in this way uh, until you um, suggested I read his book. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, you can, you know, it doesn't really matter what your circumstance is that you can you have the, the the ability, the potential, if you choose to, to find that silver lining and to make whatever it is you're going through meaningful in some way. Uh, and so for Frankel, yeah, going through those those terrible times, he was able to find a positive attitude amidst the whole thing. And that probably helped save his life in the long run, right? Correct, that, yeah. That positive attitude uh, helps people heal from physical injury faster, from surgeries faster, from- Absolutely. Uh, it has is, is contributed to spontaneous remission cases, uh, people mm -hmm. who are terminally ill if they remain positive. And so this whole idea about um, what your mindset is doesn't only, uh, you know, play on perception, but it also has a direct connection, which we're, we're unclear about, you know, direct connection mm -hmm. to, you know, how our mind body works and yeah. how if we hold a belief in our mind about ourselves, it can literally change the physiology of our bodies to, uh, you know, boost immune system to, to mm -hmm. be able to survive, you know, um, mm -hmm. getting your limbs blown off in a war situation, right? Yeah. We, can, we can override our physical systems in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so you said, you know, there's these, these two ways you can look about existential questions, right? Big existential mm -hmm. questions. Who are we? What are we here for? You know, all these uh, and a whole bunch more. Some people slip into what I would call like doom and gloom type thinking. Like mm -hmm. oh, now we start talking about death. We start talking about more uh, things labeled more morbid in our culture, right? Yeah. And we can right. become more negative and have almost like a uh, like a nihilistic view on the on the world, on the earth, on everything. Mm -hmm. What's the point? You know, if we can't find those answers. And then on the other mm -hmm. side, like the side that you and I have taken, is that mm -hmm. we we got a glimpse of what that could be, uh, what the potential is there to understand something in those mm -hmm. questions. And it mm -hmm. drew us in and it made us curious. And then every step of the way, when we would get a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of incentive by getting a little answer here and there to our existential yeah. questions, it would further propel us into exploring it. Mm -hmm. um, so you were talking about second grade. Um, <laughs> and I do remember second grade quite well, actually. Um, awesome. I remember being the, the boy on the playground, running around playing kissy games with all the mm. girls. Mm. Um, but I also remember um, in elementary school, I think it was fourth grade, where um, I had my first altered altered uh, consciousness experience. Like, we all get dizzy. Uh, that yeah. was a little earlier, but in fourth grade, I, I learned uh, stupidly the choking game. We make mm. yourself pass out on the playground. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. after the first time I did it, I, I came out of that and I was like, what was that? Like, that was mm. totally foreign to mm. anything I'd experienced in my conscious waking life. And I was like, that has something there that I need to understand. Mm. And I think that is really probably what kicked off my interest initially in um, 
other places that we can take our mind, yeah. you know, and existentialism mm-hmm. is a great pathway to, to get to some of those deeper questions. Yeah. And I imagine when you had that experience of playing that game and I, I remember, you know, my elementary school classmates getting in trouble for playing that game and people, mm-hmm. you know, passing out and parents getting involved. I remember that, that part of history and our ages are the, the same. So I get that part too. Going back to just briefly, when you talk about silver linings, understanding what is meant by that, I always go back to intention. So silver lining being not just how do we reframe all of this pain and make it happy? That's not what we're talking about here. It's more of silver lining being what did I gain from the pain, you know, gain from the pain as opposed to forget the pain. This is a happy thing. Let's forget about that. But appreciation of the pain and taking that with our development as human beings moving forward. Yeah. So you've, that, you've done yeah. a lot of stuff in post-traumatic growth. And yes, um, since you exposed me to that, I've been on a post-traumatic growth high horse, you know? Okay, um, good. And I, well, I say good as in, thank you for that yeah. feedback, but also I'm excited for you. Not, yeah, no, it's not great. an evaluative piece. Sure. Yeah, and it's so useful in therapy too, you know, helping people understand that they, they couldn't have been as resilient or, or as strong as they are now without having had that trauma or whatever mm-hmm. it was happen in the first place. Yep. Um, and it really hits home with people and it really starts to give them hope about things that they were not hopeful for about. Uh, I use it for myself too, you know, as a mm-hmm. way for me to not only reframe the pain, like you said, but uh, mm-hmm. be grateful in some yeah. way for the pain. Mm-hmm. And there's so many ways that that takes shape that we don't even recognize, right? I'm, I'm thinking about even my ability to be a doctoral student. You know, my, my father dying suddenly during my master's program, his, his trust as a state left me a chunk of money for he deemed educational purposes. And from what I knew of my dad, we never talked about long-term educational plans, but there was something there that was set aside. I was able to become Dr. Rogala and honor his name and his, you know, his memory without knowing how, you know, universally that really lined up. I think, you know, that's the stuff that makes me excited Hmm. where it makes other people sad. You know, it can make some people sad saying that's unfortunate that happened, but my frame of reference is how exciting that that happened. You know, how, Hmm mind bending or mind exploring is that to consider that there is something. So maybe that's a different conversation because I, I don't want to sidetrack on some of your, your prompts there, Shane, but this idea of con- um, coincidence, I am not a big believer in coincidence. I, I happen to think coincidence means other things, but that, that has a spiritual reference to it. And I don't pull that into therapy or into counseling because, you know, my accrediting body would not say that that is a therapeutic tool, but I don't know what your thought is on that chain too. Just think about coincidence. And is that something that is just random? Do things happen by accidents? This ties into a lot of the conversation too. Um, I think for myself, um, and, you know, the listeners should know this and they should, you know, um, take into account and do some self-reflection on this too. But I come in with my own set of biases, my own set of education, mm-hmm. my own uh, background in multiple yep. types of religious studies. Um, but I think for me, where I'm sitting with it right now, um, 
I don't think I believe in coincidence. Um, but I also don't believe that everything is pre-scripted. You know? mm-hmm. um, I believe- Deterministic versus... Um, what's the other one? Deterministic yeah, versus free will. Yeah. yeah free will. Yep. So mm-hmm. um, I, I do believe that everything happens uh, in, uh, in sequence because of causes and effects. Um, ripples. I, yeah, ripples. But I also believe that there are probably 99% of those ripples that we are talking about, we have zero understanding of right now. Mm -hmm. Like these are things that we can't see necessarily that are happening between us, uh, quantum interactions, perhaps. Um, And I do believe that, you know, things are happening exactly in the only way that they could have happened, given these particular circumstances that just happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I also believe in, um, you know, and this is kind of out there, some, uh, uh, you know, the, the what is it, uh, multiple worlds theory, where, you know, there's an infinite amount of um, realities happening simultaneously, and mm-hmm. different decisions are being making, made in each reality, um, just to, to make it change just a little bit. Um, so we are just living one reality that, that ha- is a cause of what has just come right before us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no coincidence. And we do as beings, whatever yeah. we are, energetic beings, we have this ability to um, make choices and to choose parts of our path. Um, not every part of our path, uh, unless we're completely mindful and in the moment all the time, but we have these abilities to make choices and divert our path in in ways that suit um, larger goals. You know, and mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's a really unique ability as human beings and human uh, soul bodies to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, no one. Is, I don't like the idea that someone or something has already determined my my mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do feel that with those infinite universes happening simultaneously, that every single possible choice that I could have made in my lifetime will have been made in at least one of those, you know, existences. So, um, yeah. so the full spectrum of every choice that it could have possibly been made for every single human being will, um, mm-hmm. we're just, we're just happening to, to be inhabiting one particular timeline. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That was yeah. <laughs> It does. No, it's not out there to me. I think I have to, because I'm a counselor educator training, you know, mm-hmm. accredited students and all that. I, I don't have a lot of experience. I don't have any experience on like the psychedelic therapies that you're talking about. And into that's a big, you're a big advocate for such. I, th- I think talking about alternative universes makes perfect sense to me. And as a counselor mm-hmm. with, you know, licensure and all of that, what I'm thinking about is, not only can our clients access that and understand it, but where did, where does their sense of power come from mm. as well? You know, where can choice also be relevant for them? So thinking that this is what life has assigned me today. And I try to do that every day saying, you know what? I not, I might not be in the best headspace, energy level. This might've came up, something like that. But this is where I am. Can we teach them to live like Dale Car- Carnegie would say, like in date type compartments? Can we say, you know, what's the data that we have today and where are the choices that we have to make here? Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the existential angst. So maybe I should go yeah. and just touch on that. 
when it comes to Yalom's work and the, the four existential anxieties, which he considers, and I agree, happen for every human being, whether you are a psychologist, a psychiatrist, counselor, pastor, astronaut, it doesn't matter. But we all go through these different levels of anxieties. And one being, okay, so I wrote a couple of when you were talking down before, or talking about this earlier, Shane. So meaninglessness is a big existential anxiety, meaning, meaning literally, you know, what is my impact on the world? It is what I'm doing here of good, mm-hmm. you know, whether that be career or family influences or how we're interacting with our children or our friendships or our siblings. Am I doing something well? Am I doing something good? Am I going to leave some type of legacy perhaps? Okay. So any of all of these four, by the way, we're talking about continuums. We're not talking about yes and no. We're talking about very low anxiety is saying, no, I don't feel very anxious. I'm, I'm open to that. And high anxiety being I'm in, you know, a midlife crisis type of situation. I don't know what my purpose is in this world. Mm-hmm. And Shane, you talked about that a little bit. So those things fluctuate over time for every human being. The other one being isolation. I think, again, that was so big and continues to be big with the pandemic and everything else happening in our lives right now. Existentialists, so Yalom or Frankel, somebody that is really big on understanding this well, would say you enter this world alone and you die in this world alone, or you enter and you exit alone. Okay, so even though you're, actual birth mother is present for your birth, your, your soul comes into this world by itself. And no matter how many people are around you, when you exit this physical world, you still go alone. Okay. So that, that is something that is really hard. We're in a death denying Western culture in the United States, and we don't like to talk about that. Okay. We, we like to bring up Shane, remind me to talk about anticipatory grief later. If we get, we get a chance to, but yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that as something to lean into. We talk about that as something to avoid. So those two, uh, responsibility, and this is what came up for me, why I didn't want to lose it. Responsibility and choice go hand in hand. So this idea of I'm, I'm driving to the grocery store and I have a choice to stay in my lane and operate my vehicle safely and get there and get out safely without hurting anybody else. I have the responsibility to paying bills. I have a responsibility to making sure my baby doesn't suffocate because I left a pillow in the crib. Mm-hmm. Okay. That raises so much anxiety for individual people. And that, that continues throughout a lifetime. Just the minute little pieces of existential anxieties and choices when it comes to that. So we either have high or low and that fluctuates over time. And I think the big one, the big one for me, my research base is death anxiety. I think that is absolutely huge, especially in the United States. We don't like to talk about death as being a finite end to a human existence or a life on this planet where we can tangibly understand it. That is absolutely present all the time. You think about, you know, seeing roadkill on the side of the road. You think about the fall coming up and leaves starting to fall from trees. You see a dead bug, you know, because it got trapped in the window and it died on its own. We are reminded of our finiteness in this world all the time and we avoid it. And I think that raises anxiety when we avoid it rather than leaning into it, understanding it, trying to build a level of appreciation for it, as opposed to aversion Mm -hmm. towards it. That was a big, big talk. 
No, yeah, she, you go. It's, that's definitely something that I also <laughs> try and um, bring into my therapies too. Uh, you know, it's just questioning, um, questioning everything really, like helping clients learn. Part of this is learning how to think, you know, um, mm -hmm. and questioning, you know, your beliefs, questioning what you've been told about death, questioning what you, you know, what you think about it and um, trying to explore other pathways to understand it. Yeah. And for me, um, I don't even know when I made that switch. Like, it's kind of weird for me. Like I was born on Halloween. And so I always had this connection growing up um, with mm -hmm. that holiday, right? And all the, all the you know, horror movies and gruesomeness that came along with that time of season, I sort of associated as part of my identity too because mm. I associated with my birthday right sure um so I think probably through middle school high school even the first two years of undergraduate um I knew I was pursuing psychology as a profession um but I was more interested in uh forensic psychology and learning how to catch serial killers and uh, I was interested yeah. in DNA and, research yeah deviancy behaviors and rape and what it why are, why are people evil? Uh, you know, these kinds of questions and things like that. And it was, it was kind of tied to gruesome things. Yeah. And then, um, and then I, I think I had, you know, I had some, some experiences that brought me to what I perceived as being on the verge of uh, stepping over to the other side or near death experiences or, or mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it sort of totally changed my interest in psychology away from you know, what are, what are all the ways that people, you know, show up as less than, less than their perfect selves in this world, uh, you know, switching that around to, you know, being interested in what are our human potentials yeah. and uh, seeing that we're, we all go through pain in life, but some of us come out of it uh, better for it. And some of yeah. us, um, you know, use it as, I don't know, use it as an excuse to, mm. to go down or, or not even use it as an excuse. Um, well, it's more of that association of control, you know, am oh. I in control or am not? And that yeah. I'm in a, only because I don't know the reference of the quote. <laughs> I might have to tell you, Shana, you tell it to your, your listeners later, but pain being inevitable and mm -hmm. suffering being optional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right? a great one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that suffering is a, is the choice the choice point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the agency point that, that everyone mm -hmm. has, uh, but not everyone realizes that they have, right? Like yeah. pain mm -hmm. and suffering is going to happen, but how we choose to perceive it and use it, either for our downfall or for mm -hmm. getting, us, getting us stronger. Um, I think and what is it serving us, either way? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, anticipatory grief. Oh yeah. Thank you for writing that down. Sure. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think we've all experienced that, but not everyone has heard that term. So I think this is going to bring a lot of uh, clarity to some experiences that everyone has. Yeah, you're right. And hopefully you're right. I know you're right. I don't know how that will resonate with everybody that hears this. Oof. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of my Kylie's history, right? From second grade through the only person in my graduating class that I knew of whose parents got divorced. And then all of a sudden my dad, my dad died of acute cancer a couple of years later. And from diagnosis to death was four months. And I remember 
that being a very, very silent time. So that was during my master's program, my, my first graduate degree in counseling. Nobody knew what to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So think about Westernized culture as well. When somebody dies, we bring casseroles, we bring cards, we, we bring checks, which also baffled me when that started to happen. Cause I was put in charge. I was my father's power, power of attorney. So I was getting checks. Oh, this is relationship with money would be a, another very different conversation, but this idea of the support really floods in when death happens. Mm. But for four months, everybody knew in my, in my close circles and in most of my family circles and friendship circles that my dad was in palliative care, that this was not going to end in survival, that he would be dying. Yet that seemed to be the most lonely time for me, you know, that people did not want to reach out and talk to me or sit with me. And I, I, through research and thinking through this, and this is why this ended up being the topic of my dissertation study is because our own personal discomfort with death prevents us from being available for people emotionally while they're on the cusp of something very traumatic and grieving. My, my hypothesis and part of this, and this was shown statistically to be true, that notification of terminal illness is a tra- traumatic experience that is something that should be supported. And oftentimes in Western culture, it is not. We wait till death. We wait till casserole time, right? So I don't want to make that to be a little bit too stereotypical, you know? So it's just for griefing. This could be... Um, I don't know, Shane, if you think about what your reference point, what might be for anticipatory grief other than death, because it can be a couple of different things, but what comes up for you when you just hear that phrasing? And I know we've talked about that Sure. and I know you have your own personal experiences with such. So, yeah. um, Well, I mean, to be honest, what comes to my mind is um, like, first is death Um, and not necessarily human death. It's interesting Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, because I think the in my anticipation, uh, you know, all factors being the same, you know, and, and realizing the health of every individual and factoring out accidents happening, yep. um, probably my dog Tank is probably the closest person or the closest being, so, that are, yeah, that we are anticipating uh, passing away. So that's what that's what came to my mind initially. And then, mm-hmm. uh, but other forms of anticipatory grief, um yeah, I think uh, letting go of certain people in your life, like uh, anticipating a breakup um, or anticipating like moving from a place mm-hmm. that you have deep ties to, right? right. You're going to be grieving the letting go process of, of friends and family and not just from death, but from separation mm-hmm. and from uh, geological relocation. So that's another one that I think of. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And... You don't have to pull yeah, no, from, no, the, from the ground, oh, yeah. but the, I mean, there are other ways to conceptualize, right? And so the the phrase into anticipatory grief was really grounded in the early 40s um, with, and this, this was a very, you know, gender specific and patriarchal, patriarchal, that's a tough word for me to say, um, type of lean with military displacement. So this idea of men going into world wars and women going through into grief, knowing they wouldn't come back or at least anticipating they would not come back. Mm -hmm. That's where this research started to happen. And it's very early forms. 
Um, but one thing that, you know, bring it back into current time to think about why anticipatory, anticipatory grief is so important is there's three facets to it. There is the present grief. Uh, this person is here and they're suffering. And now I remember my dad, you know, he had cancer that infected also his brains. He was having regular seizures, but he didn't recognize me anymore. Mm. So there were, that was, you know, present grief. There's past grief. So you go through past grief, just like you would with sudden um, death or, you know, you lose somebody suddenly you, you think about all the past memories, right? So that's always there. It's just per grief also includes the present, but it's just per grief also includes the future while it's still happening before the person has actually died or before that, that, you know, sudden shift has happened where this person won't be able to walk me down the aisle where this person won't be here for my daughter's fifth birthday. This person or the soul won't be here when this next adventure starts for me. Okay. So that's why I think it is such an important pocket of the grief experience and to lean into, but for some, for whatever reason, culturally, as well as with research, we don't do that very well here in the United States. We don't talk about it that way. We talk about it, you know, if you go into the card aisle, for example, think about that, right? You, do you see any cards that say, I'm sorry, your, your dad is near death. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what you'd call that card, right? What, what little header you'd have on that. We don't do that here. I don't know if we do that anywhere, but just making room for seeing people when they're anticipating something hurtful, right? You know, I think that's an important point when it comes to leaning into existential angst. We want to compare ourselves. We want to say we're, we're not one of them. We're not hurting in this way. And that comparison and just separation of them versus us provides intermittent relief, but it's not necessarily a goal mm-hmm. in, in common consciousness. And so just, it's almost in our culture, it's almost become uh, a, a bit of a self-defense mechanism, right? Like sure. You, you use protection. It, yeah. You use it to separate yourself from your, yep. from existential questions about your own mortality. Mm-hmm. People don't like to go there. Right. Wow. Um, yeah, and that's fascinating too. Um, I'm sure you've done your, and I would love to hear, you know, how you prefer to explore your consciousness, you know, because people do it in different ways. Um, but for me, like, uh, it was a game changer when I moved from a place of, um, you know, my conditioning and, and fear-based thoughts of death, and I moved into a place of curiosity and mm-hmm. how other cultures mm-hmm. um, uh, approach death and, and think about it and philosophize about it. Um, you know, West Western psychology and philosophy is, is just yeah. but one branch, but that's all we're exposed to. And, yeah. you know, um, I, I loved uh, looking into like, you know, you know, Buddhist rituals around death and um, Hindu or Hinduistic and, and like what they do with bodies in India and how they treat yes. and how they treat death within the caste system and like all these different things. Which could be celebrated in other yeah, parts totally. of the world, but here we fear totally. that it's very dark. Yeah. And so here. for me, like I've adopted for myself, like some joy around um, mm-hmm. not, you know, not in a masochistic way, but thinking about death in that way. You know, when I hear about family members or, or friends or friends of friends that have died and, and someone else is suffering. Like I try and be with someone in their suffering with them. Like, you know, I'm here with you to support you, but also like, I'm, I'm happy for your, for your loved one that passed on, you know, because yeah. it should be something yeah. celebrated and 
we don't know what's after this, but I know uh, for me personally, I know that it's not necessarily the end. Um, mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I try and bring, I try and bring that um, positive uh, outlook on death. And from what I found, the more I look into it, the more I meditate on death, the more I think about uh, what it means mm -hmm. to die mm -hmm. physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, and how I have little deaths every single day in my life. Yeah. Right. Create me new, like, Every time I think about it, I feel like it takes the takes the the power out of out of it out of that condition. Yeah. You know, it it makes mm -hmm. death so much more comfortable uh, and more friendly, as if you know, because it's it, it's guaranteed, right? Why not befriend the thing that that is going to take you out, right? Mm -hmm. out, of out of this plane it. of yeah, totally. understanding? Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I love that, and just. And as Shane, as you're saying that, I understand you and I understand, you know, the reason that we're talking about this together, because we have a, a likeness there. And if we were to say this amongst like any random sample within the United States of hundred people, mm. 78 of them would hate hearing about this, right? Mm -hmm. They would, and I say hate loosely, they would, they would be reluctant. The, they change the topic back to a surface level thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that's why we talk about these things openly when it comes to mental health. And I know you have the spirituality element and I also embrace that. But I think from my professional perspective, I don't want to speak and over speak to just personal pieces. Saying that I will add though, just a, a personal story. It doesn't have to be speak to professionalism. Um, you brought up tank and I, I I've met tank. I met tank in his very, very first moments of his life. And I, and, and Shane knows my dog, Macy, that died very suddenly to an autoimmune issue that was unexpected and very, 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 very quick. And Macy, my dog, I don't know if I said that part, um, it's a, a human name. So maybe think that people might think it otherwise, but the trauma of that loss was so hard, but so educational and enriching in the same way mm -hmm. for so many different reasons. And it took me so much lean in to get to that place of not just the silver lining thing. Cause I don't want that to become defense mechanism stuff. I want that to be something that's embraced this idea of there is something I can actually improve upon in my life, or I can actually gain from this loss. And I sought out a, psychic a pet psychic um a world-renowned pet psychic because I read within that week of her loss I read four different books on pet loss because I was absolutely grounded devastated mm. by what was happening you know by the grace of the universe it happened to be on spring break week so I did have a week to do that but I reached out to this person and I think everybody and Shane you can you can chime in on this just because your belief systems and, and other ways that we access universal truths might be different from mine, but I do believe in specific abilities and, you know, abilities that not all of us do own or appreciate all the time. That was so healing for me. And there were many reasons that it was healing for me, but I needed that, you know, I needed that to, to mean that it's not all just nothing. Right. And I think that's what we do, whether we reach out to support from people like that or not, we go through a loss or we go through a, a sudden change, such as that, such as that, you know, when we're, we're losing a loved one, 
we want answers or we want a little bit of comfort. So yeah, that got me choked up a little bit. So Hmm. Shane, I don't know what your thoughts are there with just this idea of, you know, medication and psychedelics versus, you know, people that have those abilities and where you stand on that. I'd be curious just to hear your thoughts. Um, You know, I don't think psychedelics give us special abilities, Mm -hmm. but I do think that psychedelics can reveal to us special abilities that we've always had, but that we have either forgotten about or not, uh, not learned how to foster and uh, train. Um, There was actually a really interesting, uh, it was like a fieldwork really extensive fieldwork study by this archaeologist um, a few years ago that came out and um, they had determined from uh, from ancient scriptures and all these other things is that way way back in human history they believe that human beings so everyone's familiar with our five senses today right sight sound taste touch smell Uh, we have other senses too that we have names for like our sense of time our sense of balance um our sense of um you know all sorts of things so we have all these senses Mm -hmm. but this archaeologist uh believes that back in the day uh human beings used to have like over 300 different senses including things like uh telepathy or um, being able to connect with the spiritual Mm -hmm. realm or levitation Mm -hmm. or or whatever because we perhaps had a different um understanding of physics and and the laws of the universe back then that we were able to sort of um engage more of those abilities and then over time uh he he said that um over time with different periods you know industrialization and all these other things that we sort of lost our connection to a lot of those uh, senses in favor of just the ones based mostly on for survival Um, so I do believe that there's people out there that are either born with or develop, um, different senses, um, uh, psychic senses is, is one of them talking to the dead is probably another one. You know, I don't believe that when people die, they just go away like that. You can't create or destroy energy. So the energy behind that person is still around. And when an energy disperses from a, a single point, it spreads throughout the universe entirely uh equally um, in every direction right and so it makes sense that some people maybe are able to shift their conscious free their frequency a little bit to be able to access a dimension in which you know that person is still accessible there or that puppy is still accessible there um yeah or soul it doesn't have to be a human versus animal soul energy that energy that that presence Mm -hmm. um and that's that's ultimately what i think of when i think of consciousness uh as a a term is this energy this um it's almost like a an energy that is also a database for storage Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um whereas consciousness is different than the mind which uh you know the mind is what engages consciousness it's the tool in which we look at consciousness through and then the brain is different yeah. from the mind which is different from consciousness so uh, Very much. I, I like picking apart all those things um because not everyone realizes those those differences and we we can have impact on all three different levels right we can have impact yeah. on, on the consciousness level the mind level and the physical brain level um for a lot of these things um sorry i went off on a diatribe but no you're to, fine 
I wanted to ask you about, uh, okay, in general, like universal sure. truths, right? You and I are down with finding answers to universal <laughs> truths. Um, and something that I think is, is a, a little bit of a difference between us, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, sure. That, you know, and, and it's not, it's a, it's a piece of our conditioning that we fall into. But mm -hmm. um, from what I'm finding is that most people, at least here in the West, um, go about finding universal truths through the pathway of philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, like we study uh, case studies or we study um, uh, other people's experiences and reports, and then we put together a theory and a philosophy to what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how we move forward with our understanding. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. there, like, I think my my preferred route to finding universal truths is not like the philosophy is good. It provides me structure yeah. and the language, but for me, uh, the experiential path is more, is more yeah. for me for finding universal truths. And that's akin to, you know, whether it's my martial arts practice or my right. uh, meditation practice or my psychedelic practice or whatever, like it, having these experiences of, of self from different perspectives and different angles, that's sort of, uh more valuable to me in my understanding mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. way more valuable than even uh you know scientific papers that, that yeah. have been replicated you know because my experience is undeniable to me so mm -hmm. what is your take on that when when finding universal truths taking the philosophy path or taking the experiential path um versus maybe a combination of the two like what is it yeah. for you oh Great question. I know you had to take a sip of water because I did too to get started for that. But I think philosophy really did, like I said before, much earlier, really guided our understanding of existentialism. Mm -hmm. Philosophy did, of course, because we had <laughs> we only had philosophy, we didn't have research back in early, early times. Scientific theory, psychological theory. The reason that I do not just professionally, because I'm a licensed person that is endorsing such. I'm teaching my students in counselor educational programs to be able to understand anything like that. All of, all of such. That is important to me, and I, I do believe in it. It is not something that I'm forcing. Mm -hmm. Maybe if, because you said we disagree. I don't think we disagree. I think that experiential process is important contextually, when we try to, you know, base treatment plans, are we, and I don't say plans as in, this is what we're going to do next, but this is what conceptually could be happening for, for somebody. So I think, you know, mood disorders that have, you know, potential mania present there, or maybe there is a little bit more chronic issue with psychopathy, you know, where somebody is expressing lack of empathy entirely and that's starting to infiltrate into other parts of their life if it is trauma related they've experienced something very acute you know we just went through 9-11 and have had a lot of you know 9-11 anniversary and i've had a lot of conversations about survivors of such and i used to have somebody come in when i was working at iu um her she grew up in new york one of her parents was in tower one one of her parents was in tower two wow. both of them survive because they out, they were out voting that day only reason they survived wow yeah and none of their colleagues survived none of them on either side of such you know she was in a school system where 
you know, body parts were raining down on the building and her classmates have trauma, you know, so thinking about where the acute sources of distress are happening, but really when it comes to, and that's the reason I brought up the DSM and I will just reach, reach for it just because we're here, you know, when it comes to the DSM five and with a virtual background, I know that's hard to see, but my applaud for this versus the DSM four, DSM four was categorical. DSM five is dimensional. So it says how many dimensions of a person's function in everyday life, whether that be, I know my, the sun is changing and so is my face. <laughs> I'm just fading into the mountains. This mm-hmm. is very existential in itself. Um, you know, are they able to maintain relationships with their family? Are they able to go to work? Are they able to sleep? Are they able to do all these different things? That's really where the diagnostic part comes from. I don't look at symptoms. I look at overall functioning first. You know, I looked at, I look at symptoms as, you know, where categorically do we go to start, but how much is your symptomology really present there? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that I'm distracted by this, like diamond on the top of my head with the sun right now, Shane. So I don't know if that addressed any of the question that you presented, but it's not necessarily about just philosophy of where do we start, but also if a client were ever to come back to me to saying, you know, why did you choose this route versus this route? I want to have some theoretical backing for that. I want to have some agency behind that and some science behind that, as opposed to, well, this also reminds me of something that I went through or somebody said something of such, you know? Yeah. That, uh, you know, the light behind you is. I know it's really weird now. (laughs) It it looks very interesting for those of you just now I've changed the shape of my mountain of my head (laughs) into different things. I'm going to go, you uh, go ahead and stop. I'm going to go shut my window. Okay. (laughs) Or you go ahead and keep going. Yeah. So uh, for those of you just listening, like it was, it was funny because uh, the sun behind her was changing and on her background, it looked, made her, made her form on the uh, zoom podcast look translucent so we're talking about existential things and she started to literally fade into her background and look a little bit like a ghost um yeah so no i'm just gonna put it downward yeah no worries it definitely you know it makes sense um so i guess it this is this leads me into my like sub question around this um so philosophy versus experiential you know, I, I believe that, you know, all philosophy initially comes from someone's experience, right? Um, mm-hmm. experience- and replicated right. over, over some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that having the experience can be a lot more informative than reading about some philosophy, right? Like having an existential experience like I know, I no longer need people to explain it to me because I've just been through it, you know. Um, and so this leads me to the question, you know, how do you personally prefer to explore your own consciousness? Um, like, how do you, how do you intentionally engage in personal self exploration uh, as far as at, at the consciousness level? Yeah. No. Great question. And it's not just because I am you know, ethically bound by council education and KCREP, as well as, you know, our current licensure laws for my different certifications and licenses. It's not just because of that, that I'm saying I don't use psychedelic you know, influence. I don't do that. I read 
more than anybody I know, <laughs> maybe. Um, I can say Michael Singer is my favorite author. And if you haven't not, if you've not read The Untethered Soul, absolutely you need to do that. And that has it's existential, but it's so just more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I do love podcasts. I'm I'm a little bit novice to podcasts totally, but I have an odd or an audible subscription. Mm-hmm. I also Mind Valley Academy. It seems like I have endorsements from these people to tell you about this, but that's that's a general question. So Mind Valley Academy has free webinars from you know experts in personal growth and ex- exploration and consciousness and all of that that come out weekly, if not daily. I have a year year long subscription with them, so I can see all of it. That that is something I do every day. So try to do every day. I'm gonna <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work. But what I try to do is is set up a routine. I think routine exploration of our own consciousness and our just our place in the world and where we're at mentally and emotionally and physically is so important. So my goal is to wake up every day. I let my dogs out. We have a routine with breakfast. I make my coffee or my tea. And I set aside at least an hour for personal growth, you know, reflection time. I listen to a webinar. I I do whatever I can to learn more about the world other than just something that's, you know, adding to my professional growth. I want to grow personally. And I like to honor that as something that's not just about my job. Sure. It's, it's about Kylie. Right. Yeah. And so that's really where it starts. So I try to do exercise for an hour a day as well, but that can be something Shane talks to you more about because he's more committed to that than I am. But um, yes, personal growth. Yeah. So you know, it sounds like a lot of how you, how you take that in is, uh, through, you know, educational, um, varieties, whether it be reading or, or, uh, webinars or something like mm-hmm. that. So once mm-hmm. you, take, once you take in that information though, uh, what do you do with it then? Do you run, um, do you run sort of, uh, like mental simulations, thought experiments on how you would implement new information into, uh, your daily life as far as like how you think about your yourself in in reality in because uh, whenever I read uh, that's how mm-hmm. I, that's how I make the most sense of it is is not just because it's hard to just like immerse yourself in a non-fiction yeah. book it's not a fiction book that way so I, I'll take you know a chapter and then I'll, I'll reflect on it a bit and I'll think about well how how does how do these things show up in my life how could I change them uh, for the better things like that. And then I also, you know, I use, um, uh, jujitsu practice, uh, right. as a way to mm-hmm. my consciousness and implement things that I've read. And so that way I'm not just reading information, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to find connections and direct application to either situations that happen or circumstances that I put myself in, in mm-hmm. training or things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like your practice is a lot more applicable as, you know, physical, right. You, you take that elsewhere and for me, I am such a huge fan of succinct, sometimes they're long, but succinct quotes that I read from so many people or hear people say, I have my fridge with multiple different whiteboards that if something comes up, I write it down. I have journals packed with quotes and what I really, really love. And I'm not saying that this, this works for everybody, but I love, this is the academic in me. I cite the source to say, where did this come from? Maybe it's Shane LeMaster in this, this podcast right now and what date it is. Because when I flip through it, I try to do that randomly throughout the whole journal. I can just, that is my quote unquote Bible. 
So when I wake up in the morning and I maybe don't have something I want to listen to, I just open that and I start flipping through quotes and and reminders of where I was five years ago. You know, if I see something that was 922, 16, where was Kylie then? And why did this stick out to her? And how is that speaking to me now? That that's very much part of my process. I've actually said this to myself, never out loud. So there you go, Shane. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if my house is on fire, I think this is something I think people think about. What are the things you grab first? My dogs, for sure. They're number one. Before I go even to my passport and my purse, I go to that journal, you know, and I don't know what that means, but it, it is so important to me and it's built over so many years. It really is precious to me. So it is application. It's reflection and Alongside the quote journals, Shane, I have a process journal. So I write down like just phrases and things that people are using, not just quotes, but just like ideas, think about this. And I flip through that as well. So I, I make these like ongoing parts of just my, my mental health and practice. Yeah. So that's, that's, well, that's what I was kind of referring to is like, yeah, that's how you, and that's how you answered it. That's how you explore your consciousness is through taking mm-hmm. in of new information, but then reflecting on it. And I love how you have a record of it, right? Uh, not yeah. Not journal, but the process journal. That way you're not rethinking the same thoughts over and over again. You're building on them. Um, I mm-hmm. do have a, I have a quote journal too. Uh, mm-hmm. I use it very much the same way, but I don't put dates by mine. Um, when I flip through mine, I like to believe, and this, this is also my belief around um, the shuffle feature on any iPod or sure. Yeah. What quote pops up for you pops up that I was meant to read that thing. Um, just like, like I I hardly ever, ever skip, um, songs that come up on shuffle, even if I don't necessarily want Mm, to hear it because I I like that. I tell Mm -hmm. myself like, this is what the universe put in front of me and this is what I'm supposed to listen to. So I don't, I don't need to exert my. Yeah. Even if you're like, Oh, enough of the song. I don't want to hear this one again. You're leaning into that saying there's some, there's a part of the song or at least a reason that I'm here right now. It's interesting. You said in a, in a fire, what would you save? And I, I think I'm, um, I've thought about that myself too. And, uh, you know, I'd save my dogs first, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, actually in, in my last move into a, the house we're in now, um, I put all my jujitsu geese into one box. Um, and I wrote on the box, I said, uh, I wrote in case of fire, save this box first. Oh, I love that chain. That's awesome. Uh, and my, my jujitsu coach helped me move that day. And he, uh, he saw that and took a picture of it and posted it on our, on our gym <laughs> chat. Um, and that means a lot to you when you talk you talk about it it brings emotion to you yeah totally and uh you know it's you know those those jujitsu geese are not just uh fabric to me like they represent a lot of struggle and and overcoming struggle and finding myself and um finding myself among community and you know it's more than just a piece of fabric to me like they embody so much more and you know the I don't know. I can get into that for a while, but uh, they have history, though. But that that brings a sense of you. Yeah. Right. If yeah. you were to save anything, yeah. Obviously, the, the living souls that that bring that to you, but also the memory and what that all means to you in that that box. That's not just a box. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's a couple. Uh, how you doing on time? 
I'm fine. I I know I'm sitting like upright, so make me you not blinded. Oh, okay. If I go back here, but I I'm fine. Yeah. Nice. Okay, good. Um, so there's a couple. I want to kind of digress away. We've been talking about really deep stuff uh, for the last hour and a half, and I so appreciate that because we like uh, deep conversations. Sure. And I'm not going to bring it all the way to surface level. I promise. But there are. Some... <laughs> it's okay if you do, but I'll mention if it's yeah. becoming too. Yeah, there's less, uh, there are less deep, um, but still important uh, things that I've been exploring in my own life that I know you've been through that I, I just mm -hmm. want to get your perception on. So um, you have been through a PhD program. I am currently mm -hmm. going through a PhD program. Mm -hmm. uh, I watched you go through uh, mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit of your PhD program. So I, yeah. know, I know a little bit from the outside right. going into it, like some of the the existential pain, some of the, the uh, emotions. <laughs> some of the just really, really hard, crazy yeah. emotions that go with that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't just about the work, like the work was fine. No. And that's what I found uh, as well. Like the work is work, writing papers and reading articles. That's, that's kind of fun for people who love to learn. Um, yeah. But the other levels that happen to us as we go through these programs I got to watch happen to you and totally was not uh, expecting what I, what I mm. saw. And then uh, knowing what you went through, I signed up for one myself and I'm currently in the middle of my program, um, you know, at some big crossroads. And, yeah. uh, you know, I have, I have felt at times um, like, like you've mentioned, like you just get who you thought you were gets ripped apart. Your identity gets ripped. Yeah. You question everything. Yep. Um, and then you have to put it back together and it's very painful. So yeah. I, was, I was wondering, you know, can you recall, I don't, you know, it wasn't too long ago that you were a student still. Can you recall, <sighs> can you recall what it was like for you going through uh, those four years? Yeah. It, and I think you're speaking to specifically doctoral work. Yeah. Shane. Yeah. The yeah. And I, you know, you and I touched base just briefly before we started tonight with, you know, academia and what that means. And I knew, so my program was counselor education, knowing I would go into academia and that was different for you. And I think when, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. I, because I, I, I really have appreciation, but there was a lot of, I think people use the term imposter phenomenon pretty loosely. That could be with master's programs, that could be in a trade school environment, that could be with anything. The transition into actual application of academic work versus learning about it and practicing it with constant supervision. It, it really is just a struggle to know and trust yourself in your own path. You know, you, you, you pass the classes, you have the dissertation approved, you've done all of that. There's something with all of these people that are giving you the plus sign or the stamp of approval that you have to lean into and trust because originally you're not going to, mm -hmm. okay, when you're actually in, I Shane, maybe you want to talk about more of the, the end products as you are, I know you're in you know, dissertation mode right now, or if you want to focus more on what it's like to enter into a doc program, you know, you can help me guide that a little bit. Cause it is, 
a very long and emotional process. Yeah, well, I think um, everyone in my cohort, my cohort was small. It was like Mm -hmm. seven or eight of us. Everyone in my cohort um, at some point or another talked in class about feeling that imposter syndrome, like feeling like they they may not be smart enough or they, you know, do they really belong there or, Mm -hmm. you know, um, are they going to be able to finish and all these things? And I think it still continues for some of my classmates. I'm not exactly sure because I haven't asked them, but I I think it is. Um, For me, like I, it was a little different. Like I felt like I belonged there from day one. Um, And it's since that starting date that I have actually begun to question uh, Mm. some of those questions. Right. And, you know, um, I, I know I'm, you know, I, I, I know I'm smart enough to do this stuff. I know that I, my work ethic is strong enough, but I, I've had some, uh, some illusions sort of shattered about what academia is and what it means to have these degrees and things like that. And, you know, in along the same lines as like what we were talking about before with DSM, like these educational structures, although they're changing and they're changing for the better, uh, it's Mm -hmm. going to be a really long process, um, before it is ideal. And a lot of these systems were designed by uh, white privileged men um, in order to hold up an already uplifted class system, you know, Mm. and, and I don't feel like I want to participate in that. And so that's where my, okay. So you have some resistance that that folds into that. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I've chosen to not go into academia. I still want to do research, uh, probably, probably for private, uh, psychedelic research, um, company Mm -hmm. in the future. Um, but you know, at times I've, I've questioned like, you know, I know I can do this work, but do I really want to give into this system? Do I really yeah. want to? And so right now I'm like, yes, like in order to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish with my education and in my life in general, like this is the path that needs to be taken. I have to play mm-hmm. by the rules. I have to play within the system. Mm-hmm. And then um, I get a choice afterwards. So right now in my doc program, I'm at the point where I'm done with classes and I've started my um, uh, comprehensive exam. Uh, so I'm kind of right in the middle. Um, and yeah. then I'll be proposing for which differs between universities and programs. Yeah. I know we chatted about that a little bit too, right? But different challenges. Yeah. And I wanted to, and I, so I brought that up because I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, so my exam is a 40 page paper, um, pretty much, uh, you know, um, a systematic literature review along with a theory section and design for an experiment and research question. So like a mini dissertation project uh in 40 pages um that's what the assignment was but yours was wasn't yours a two-day eight-hour exam something like that yeah so different uh touching on i know we're we're within our last couple of minutes here but touching back on why get a phd yeah i know i've spoken to you about this very explicitly and i have for you know students over the past decade as well, they say, I want to go into my doctorate. I want to go into my doctorate. And yeah, I literally say, why? Yeah, is it? Because worth- that's important. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's important. I would say in my experience with cohorts that I have been a part of, if your why is, I just want to keep going. I like school and I want to be called doctor someday. It's either A, not going to work out we're not going to finish or B, you're not going to be happy when you finish. 
So I cannot emphasize that enough. And that Shane, I'm glad we're talking about the differences in profession. So you are you counseling psych at CSU? Is that what is no, your uh, program title? Yeah, program is uh, social work. Okay, your social work doctoral program. Yeah, knowing you know what what are you know the student success rates, but not just success, but what research did they publish? What were their dis- dissertations? What are the faculty doing? Is that speaking to your passion? is so much more important than, yes, I like school and yes, I want to be called a doctor someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that is, that's absolutely huge. So I probably have more things to say, but I know Shane and I, we've had that. Yeah. I, I would say that that's my number one piece of advice too. If anyone mm-hmm. is looking into it is do your research on the faculty. Um, mm-hmm. That's the main reason why I'm even in the social work program at CSU is because I've been applying for the, the uh, psychology program for five years straight and didn't get in. Um, but then I met a professor in the social work department who happened to have the same um, interests in mm-hmm. uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapies and, and future potentials for that that I did. And so that's how I found myself in the social yeah. work department. You found your family. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, at least I found one mentor, uh, probably one of the- You found your starting family. Yeah, exactly. The full profession will be your family moving forward. Yeah. And well, that's, yeah, that's been, uh, that's been a little challenging, but also a little exciting for me too, that there are so few uh, professors on campus that even know about this research that I'm doing, Mm -hmm. um, let alone doing it themselves. And from what I've heard, uh, my research may be one of the first uh, dissertations on psychedelic research that has been done since the 70s uh, at CSU, which I'm, I'm super yeah. stoked about that I'm, I'm opening this back up for people. But yeah, the why behind the PhD, mm-hmm. I think is so much more important. And um, for me, like, I think that question had always been answered, that the PhD was was not the end goal, it was a means yeah. to get to my end goal, um, and made that path a lot easier Mm -hmm. (laughs) so put in the hard work now in order to make my path easier afterwards and the cohort members I think that that struggle more with that probably um, don't know exactly what they want to be doing afterwards uh, or what they want to be working on so um, yeah and what was your experience in your uh, PhD program around mentoring did you get pretty did your um, you know committee chair and everything were were they pretty hands-on with you or were they pretty hands-off No, that's a good question. I think it changed a little bit over time. So I will absolutely endorse Fred Hanna, who is currently the doctoral chair, um, the doc program chair at Adler University in Chicago. Hmm. He will forever and always be probably my number one mentor throughout this entire process of higher education and seeking doctoral work. He's not at the University of Northern Colorado anymore, where I did um, secure my degree, but he was the one that turned me on to existentialism and thinking about this and thinking about death and dying and what does this mean? How can we measure it? How can we study it? I think it changes, you know, it, it changes to specialty um, with faculty and with academia. You know, you have to, I don't want to say court, but you have to understand the reasons that they are all in a why as well. You know, so each individual faculty person, if you were to be in a doctoral program where you have, you have to have an outside representative, maybe two, depending on program, you want to understand their whys. You don't want to just like cold call, hey, I need a person. You want 
some unity in that. Mm -hmm. So I think I was very much supported. Also thinking about qualitative versus quantitative, you want to think about that. So if anybody here listening is an academic or in an academic um, doctoral role, and Shane, maybe you can talk about this. We talked, we touched on that a few months ago when we, you know, discussed maybe a um, research question or methodology, but if you have a chair that is more qualitative, or if you have a chair that's more quantitative, maybe there's either a co-chair opportunity there, or maybe a switch might be relevant for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so making sure your methodology is really locked tight for dissertation is important for completing the entire program. Okay. Mm-hmm. And just put that out there and Shane, you can provide feedback on it, but I think that that is very much a thing. I think support for me was very well established, but getting expertise in certain things that I needed was a different conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, and they, I like this part about it, but they really put that onus on the student Okay. Uh, to, to form their team around them. Um, I mean, the, the department is great. They, they help students out in every which way that they possibly can, but they also expect us to take, you know, to learn yeah. uh, as a, to, how does a professional conduct themselves? Well, a professional handles, handles whatever needs to be handled. Um, yeah. So when we are tasked with um, choosing our committee, we have free reign to choose whoever we want. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can choose, only people who agree with us, or we can choose people who are going to challenge us. Um, mm-hmm. I pers- I made my choices based off of number one, my committee chair, um, having um, a basis in the literature and knowing what I'm talking about. Yeah, She's my guiding light. And then I picked another person uh, for their methodological expertise in quality mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked another person. My outside member is the uh, department chair of the philosophy department. Um, because I took cool. a uh, metaphysics of self class with him in my doc program and um, his mm-hmm. understanding of, of uh, transpersonalism and, and um, sort of the, the theories that I'm working with. Um, I thought that was important. And then my last one uh, is my, um, my department chair um, mm-hmm. or my director, mm-hmm. my course director. And um, she's just, she's great all around uh, as far as like making sure that I'm taking care of the social work aspect. So I chose my, I chose my members very specifically, but at times I've found myself wanting a bit more hands-on or personal interest in my project and what I'm doing from them. Uh, But I also realized just how busy the life of an academic is and uh, it's got to be really hard but, you know, I see, mm-hmm. I see some other um, professors or whatever, like really being hands-on and mentoring some of their students. And sometimes I wish I had that, but yeah. I also enjoy the freedom of uh, not getting emails every week, wondering. <laughs> Where is this? Is. Yeah. Where are you at with such? They just trust yeah. me. They're like, okay, he'll get it done, you know? Yeah. And I can say from 10 years now, being in higher education as a faculty member, I've never had doctoral students before. So we have not had a doctoral program. We've only had a master's program. So I can't speak from application parts for that. But yeah, getting support and knowing how much autonomy you have and how much support you need, you really do need, no matter where you're at, to have a voice to say, I need help. And that was one of the very first feedback things I remember from my first year in doctoral work before dissertation before deciding what I was going to do with my life and career 
you know, one of our, our professors said, you have to tell us what you need because we can't guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. We only know so much. So if anybody here is listening and thinking about, you know, how do I find a mentor? What that looks like, you do have to be a pretty proactive voice in all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last little bit that I wanted to bring up, and this is, uh, you know, as we're coming out of the deep waters, we're moving back into the shallower end, uh, but still important. Um, just real quick, I, I, you know, I mentioned in your intro today that you're a longtime uh, doggy foster mom, mm. or you were, and uh, you've always had uh, dogs as a part of your life, and yeah. you know, I've known you, and so, and so have I, and uh, I just wanted to talk very briefly about your take on uh, dogs and their effects on our lives, and mm-hmm. what it's been like fostering, right, and, and as I speak of this right this second, I'm thinking about all the multiple instances of anticipatory grief you had to go through uh, oh, gosh, and, and knowing yeah. you're going to have to get rid of, you know, not get rid of, but <laughs> adopt out this doggy uh, yes. and, and that you've formed bonds with. That's got to be extremely. But I, I have had fosters that had fed physical ailments that died in my care. So, uh-huh. I mean, there's a little bit about, yeah. Yeah. A change and, in light is hard. I'm going to put these back. No, on. it's fine. Uh, one yeah. of my, one of my committee members actually published something during uh, the pandemic. Uh, it was a research study done about um, uh, pets and COVID and how yeah. having a pet uh, significantly reduces uh, senses of isolation and, and, um, and improves well-being in, in those, in the pandemic context. So. Yeah. Yeah so many layers to it. I've always been a huge animal advocate. And for people that might be listening to this thinking, oh, I don't like dogs or I'm not a pet person. I think what Shane's speaking to here is still valid and important to think about how either pets or associated relationships really impact our lives and how we conceptualize that. Yeah, it became, I went from teaching, I lived about 30, 35 minutes away from a university, teaching three nights a week, had all these meetings throughout the week. I was basically away from home all the time, but I had a fencing backyard and a dog door, and I really just hoped my pets would be okay, and you know, they were. I mean, physically, they were fine, and then all of a sudden, March 2020 came along, And the pet rescue that I had been affiliated with, I've been fostering for about a year and a half at that point, but one dog at a time, you know, just taking them to uh, training classes and doing all all of that. Uh, (laughs) Anybody that would comment, if I post a picture, they'd say, how do you say goodbye? And I think that's what Shane's referring to as well. How do you say goodbye? what was best for me, what was so much, so helpful for me is one of my first days just training to be a volunteer, not just a foster mom, but training to be a volunteer. I went into the shelter and one of the long-term volunteers there, the, the program I worked with, everybody's a volunteer. Nobody has paid a dime. We were associated with the shelter. Nobody gains a, a single cent from this. It's all their hearts, which was humbling enough, but walking through, that was the part I'm like, I don't know if I can walk through I don't know if I can walk through all of that, you know, hundreds of dogs, homeless, living in crates and, and that type of thing. And it wasn't crates. It was, it was runs and it was a lot more pleasant than I thought it would be. But she looked at me and she said, if they wouldn't be here, they'd be dead. Does that help you? You know, and I was affiliated with a rescue. that was no kill rescue. It's different. So knowing that part, and I don't want to get long winded on that. Shame, but you brought that up as a very big passion point for me. 
um, that, that was a great grounding, you know, phrase for me. If they wouldn't be here, they'd be extinguished because our rescue pulled dogs specifically from the South, because that's a very high, high kill area Hmm. that anywhere where a dog was at risk of euthanization, just because they didn't have a home. That was the, the passion of our rescue. So yeah, over 50, 50 dogs. I only had to leave one behind, behind knock on wood. So if anybody listening to this lives in an associated Michiana area in the Chicago or Indiana area, my little boy Kaido is still waiting for a home, but yeah, knowing the grief of goodbye means a new beginning, but that in more, you know, terms for our audience here, that tears are okay. Grief is okay in celebration times, as well as it is in grieving times in sadness, you know, that you can cry tears of excitement and loss, but also, I don't know, just this, this idea of hope that I did something, that I have a role in something bigger than me. Thank you for bringing this up at the end chain, as opposed to the, (laughs) the beginning, because it does choke me up. Sure. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's a great way for us to end it right there. Um, there were a few more things that I wanted to talk to you about, but we'll just sure. have you back on the show another time. Well, and- let's do it again. Okay. Um, so again, to our listeners, thank you for listening. This has been episode 103. Thank you so much, Kylie, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. It was super fun. I think I could last for two hours, but we yeah. did it. We covered some really good ground, <laughs> and uh, as always, like I'm always left with more questions than when I started, yeah. um, and that's the way I like to leave it. So thank cool. you to the listeners. Thank you to Kylie, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Holy cow. That podcast just blew my mind and left me on the floor in a good way. What an amazing experience, not only to record that, but uh, to listen to it again. So by the time I, I record these uh, intros and outros, I've already re-listened to the podcast once or many times. I like to go back and, and gather more information each time I listen to it. Um, but man, we, we talked about so much in that podcast. So amazing um, to talk to Kylie, uh, Dr. Rogala, about existentialism, about um, concepts that we all hear about, doom and gloom, uh, enlightening um, experiences, um, you know, her life experiences around, um, you know, uh, achievements and, and overcoming losses in her life, um, you know, talking about how we can approach grief in new ways, uh, post-traumatic growth, you know, all these wonderful, wonderful concepts. I hope you all got something out of it. Um, if you did and you want to uh, write, write us about it, please do. We'll definitely share it on the website. Go to the MindOps website, mind-ops.com, and go to the comments section. Leave me a comment, and I will find a way to post it to the conversations with the, with the Mind community. I really want to start uh, opening up this podcast now that we're past 100 episodes, and we're really opening it up and make it a lot more of a social environment for those uh, those out there, you all who are listening, and um, try and figure out a way to, to help make it a platform where communication can occur between all of you, like-minded individuals. I mean, you wouldn't keep coming back to this podcast if you didn't find something interesting, and uh, hopefully you have a desire to connect with other people who share those interests. So, 
help me make this uh, podcast into something like that, where we can share it with more people and start to have deeper and deeper conversations, so much better than having surface-level conversations, I tell you what. So go check out the website. Go check out our YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S, and make sure you come back next time for a new episode coming up soon of Conversations with the Mind. Bye.